that's available. It's, it's really an amazing thing to, uh, to see what they're able to do in, in terms of surgeries and various treatments and so forth to, to help these uh, broken bodies to, uh, to function a little bit better. And so we, just, we should really be praising God that we live in this, this time, this day, this age with, with all of that advantage available to us. It's really been remarkable, you know, in the last 30 or so years, the advancement in technology, and probably the advancement hasn't been anywhere uh, more greater than in the area of DNA technology, when you think about that. It is quite an amazing thing now that they're beginning to peer into the human genome and, and to understand, at least at probably a very childlike level, how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are put together in such a fashion that God has created Within us, this is a DNA strand that carries all of the information that will ever be needed for us to live our full life. It's really quite an incredible thing. And the whole DNA advancements has led to advancements as well in, in the whole issue of paternity suits. It's now uh, relatively simple, I understand, to figure out uh, who the father of a child is through simple DNA testing. And I can't help but, uh, but think that old Solomon probably would have been uh, happy to have that available to him. Back in his day, they wouldn't have had to call for a sword. Yeah, he would have uh, called for a DNA kit, I suppose. You know, I even uh, saw on the Internet that you can... You can purchase a do-it-yourself home DNA identification kit for $89. And uh, I don't know how that exactly works. I imagine you take a blood sample and subject it to various chemical analysis or something. But in any case, you can buy your own home kits. Well, this morning I'm going to provide you with a, uh, a spiritual paternity test. A spiritual paternity test. And this one's not going to cost you $89. In fact, this one's going to be absolutely free for the taking. But don't be deceived. The fact that it is not going to cost you $89 doesn't mean that it's not worth anything. The paternity test, the spiritual paternity test that we're going to have this morning is of infinite value. Because the outcome of that test determines one's eternal destiny. Are we children of God the Father, or are we not? And then in the text before us this morning, we have a means to examine ourselves and to know with certainty. The Scripture encourages self-examination. In a number of places, it speaks to us and says we need to examine our hearts, we need to examine our lives to see if there is a genuineness about us, that we really are who we claim to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says there, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Christ Jesus is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. First John, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Of course, First John, those five chapters are written so that we might examine ourselves and know that we have eternal life. These tests, by the way, are designed so that we might know the truth about ourselves and have assurance in that knowledge. But they are also designed to reveal if, Indeed, we have somehow deceived ourselves. Because as I said, the outcome of these tests is dramatic. The consequences of flunking are catastrophic. Let me read Romans for you here this morning. I'm just going to back up to verse 12 and get a little running start at the passage. So beginning in verse 12 of Romans chapter 8, listen to the word of the Lord. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 
For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So, in the text before us this morning, verses 14 through 17, and I've put a handout in the bulletin for you, and you might want to pull that out and you can kind of follow along. But in the text before us this morning, we have a threefold paternity test. A threefold paternity test that we must self administer so that we will know whose child we are. A threefold paternity test that we must self administer so that we might know whose child we really are. Beginning in verse 14 is the first part of that paternity test. And it's simply this. Sons of God are led by the Spirit. Sons of God are led by the Spirit. Look at the text, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit, excuse me, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, there's a context here that we need to get this verse properly located into so we understand what he's talking to us about. Notice the verse begins with four. You see that. That in indicates to us that there is a continuation of a discussion here and and that he's drawing a conclusion or giving an explanation or making an amplification of something that he has previously said in the text. So he's drawing us back here, verse 14, to that which has gone before in order to explain what he is saying here when he talks about being led by the Spirit of God. Being led by the Spirit of God draws us back into verse 13 where he talks there about the Spirit, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. And in fact, what he is really saying to us here is that verse 13b and verse 14 are two sides of the same coin. Putting to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body and being led by the Spirit of God are really two sides of the same coin. It's two sides of the same activity. In verse 13b, we have the activity of the believer. It is something that we are to do. We are to be by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. That is mortifying the flesh. And we talked about that last week. But in verse 14, we see the other side of the coin. We see the Spirit's side the spirit's activity in the leading of his children so it's what we do and it's what the spirit does in us that together tell us what it means to to walk by the spirit in these matters you know we're called to do that as a christian we're called to walk by the spirit we're called to be involved in a daily even hourly struggle with sin we're called to put it to death Verse 13 again, to execute it, to do violence to those unlawful desires, those schemes, those wicked, those blasphemous thoughts, our vile speech patterns, the very hurtful and selfish deeds that our sinful flesh is is constantly generating. You know, the human heart, beloved, is an idle factory. It is an idle factory and it works 24 hours a day. There is no downtime. There is no change of shift. It is constantly churning out cheap substitutes for God. In every direction of our lives, constantly there is a war going on. And we are called, the end of verse 13, to be about the process of executing the flesh, the deeds of the body, putting it to death, And that means, in the context here of Romans 8 and verse 14, it means to be led by the Spirit. It means to be directed by the Spirit. It means to be impelled by the Spirit. It means to be controlled by the Spirit. You can't have one without the other. You can't be led by the Spirit and not be involved in the mortification of your flesh. You cannot be executing the deeds of the flesh without being led by the Spirit. The two must coincide together. 
We actively participate in the mortification, the work of mortification, the work of executing the deeds of the body. Verse 13b. But it is still fundamentally the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. That is, verse 14, we are being led, present, passive, indicative. We are passive in the sense that it is the Spirit who is impelling us to do that which He has commanded us to do. He is called the Holy Spirit of God, is He not? For He leads us into holiness. His work in us is to lead us, it is to draw us, it is to impel us, it is to direct us, it is to control us, to drive us even into the path of holiness. But how does He do it? How are we led by the Spirit of God? Verse 14. How is it that that happens? How are we led by the Spirit of God into the fight to put to death the deeds of the body? The Spirit of God is like a shepherd. You can think of it that way. He is like a shepherd. Remember Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And then later Jesus said that I will send another comforter to be with you. One of, of like manner to be with you. That is that the Spirit of God works in us to lead us, to guide us, to protect us as His sheep, as His children. And He does it through His Word. He uses His Word. It is through His Word that He convicts us of sin. He convinces us that we should turn from sin and turn to faith. He transforms us through His Word. And He does it as we literally gaze into it. Keep your thumb here in Romans 8 or make sure you can find your way back and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Beginning in verse 15. How does the Spirit lead us into holiness? Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians verse 3, beginning in or chapter 3, rather, beginning in verse 15. And he is speaking here just in context about the preaching of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and he's saying that a veil lies over the eyes of Israel at the reading of the Old Testament. They don't understand it because they haven't been revealed to them in Christ. So verse 15, he says, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So in context, he's talking about the Word of God. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another just as from the Lord who is the Spirit, Paul says. What is he saying? He's saying that as we... As we gaze, as we stare, as we pursue the Word of God, that the Spirit of God Himself transforms us through that process. That it is as we pour ourselves into the Scriptures that the Spirit of God who inspired those Scriptures begins to transform us. He begins to lead us. He begins to impel us. He begins to direct us. He begins to guide us. He begins to take us into the paths of holiness. That is, that He he enables us to do that which is commanded of us to put to death the deeds of the body. Last week, I shared with you some of my own personal application of how I attempt to fulfill the command here to put to death the deeds of the body. And I, and I told you that I pursue the Scriptures. That is my first and foremost way of attempting to live a holy life. It is the pursuit of God through the Word of God. And I commend it to you, beloved, because it is the way God works. It is the way the Spirit of God works in you. Romans 8, verse 14 again, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We have a statement of exclusivity. You notice that, verse 14. These are the sons of God. We have a, we have a statement here as to exclusivity. That is that the sons of God are the ones being led by the Spirit and those who are not being led by the Spirit are not sons of God. Doctrinal orthodoxy is important. It must never, ever be compromised. 
But what a man knows is not the final measure of his relationship with God. The final evaluation, the final analysis is the Spirit's leading in his life. It is an unmistakable and incontrovertible test to see whether he is indeed a child of God. That's what's packed into verse 14. That if we are being led by the Spirit of God, we are the sons of God, and the leading of the Spirit of God will lead us in the paths of righteousness, in the paths of holiness. Our sonship is validated by our following the Spirit's leading into holiness. Now, the standard is not perfection. The standard is not perfection. It is not that we have arrived. It is not that we have fully slain the flesh. That it no longer fights or wars against us. That's not true, for it does. It is not our perfection, but listen to me, it is our direction. It is our direction. What is the direction of your life? Where are you going? What motivates you? What are you involved in? Are you part of the war? Is the Spirit at work in you? Is He impelling you, directing you, compelling you into the fight? If so, it is an evidence of your sonship. So, evaluate your life. This is a self-administered test. A paternity test with three parts. The first one says that we need to evaluate our own life. Can we point to an increasing love for and obedience to Jesus Christ? Can you look at your life and can you say that I love Him more today than I did ten years ago? Can you look at your life and can you say that I am walking more consistently in the paths of righteousness today than I once was? Not do I fall, not do I sin, not do I even at times fall into great sin, but do I long for and move after Christ? Am I drawn to Him? If so, you pass the test. You pass the test. And in this, there is great assurance. Secondly, secondly, the sons of God enjoy intimacy with Him. They enjoy intimacy with Him. First, the sons of God are led by the Spirit. Second part of the test is that the sons of God enjoy intimacy with Him. Him, verses 15 and 16, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do we enjoy intimacy with God? Paul says here that the spirit we have received, look again, verse 15, The Spirit we have received here, that is the Holy Spirit, does not lead us back into bondage. He does not lead us back under sin and the law and all those things from which we have been delivered and which Paul has labored away in chapters 6 and 7. Remember again the big context going on here. This is chapters 6, 7, and 8. We're talking about sanctification of the believer. And so Paul is saying that the Spirit you have received, the Holy Spirit of God, does not put you back under bondage to the law. In fact, what He does is He leads you into intimacy with your God, your Father. As Christians, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer held in bondage to irresistible sin. We are no longer condemned by the law. We no longer need fear judgment. Look again at that verse. For you have, received, you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. There is no fear of judgment. Christ has taken the judgment for us. He has extinguished the wrath of God. We read Isaiah 53 earlier. Christ Himself has drained the cup of the wrath of God to the last drop on your behalf. You have no need of fear In fact, instead of a spirit of bondage, He is the spirit of adoption. 
Verse 15 again. Do you see it? You have received a spirit, I think probably better translated, the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He has brought us into the family of God. We have been delivered from the old age and we have been brought into the new. We have been made part of the family of God. We have been united with Jesus Christ. We are sharers in His sonship. Look at verse 17. We are indeed heirs of all good things. In contrast to the inner dread, the sense of of judgment and guilt that lies in the heart of the unregenerate. For those who know Christ, there is a sense of peace and security before God. Our Heavenly Father has produced that in us by placing His very Spirit within our heart. In fact, Paul could hardly have chosen a better term than adoption to characterize the peace and security that we know as a child of God. Adoption is really an interesting and rich theological term in the New Testament. It is only used by the Apostle Paul. And in fact, it only appears in five places in the New Testament. The Jews themselves had no formal practice of adoption. It was not unknown to them. Certainly they were familiar with it because Moses himself was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So they were familiar with it. But when Paul talks here in verse 15 about receiving the spirit of adoption, that is the whole wonderfully rich discussion of adoption, he is speaking in a Roman context. He is speaking in the context of the Roman world. And in that world of that day, adoption had certain parameters around it that enabled it to carry the freight, if you will, for the tremendous theological truth that is true about you and I who know Christ. In the Roman world, a father could legally adopt either a child or an adult into his family. He could have his own natural children and he could still adopt in from the outside. And that adopted child and or adult that came in became part of the family in all of its legal status. That adopted one, child or adult, became a sharer in all of the rights and privileges. In fact, it was possible to adopt a son in as your firstborn. Even if you had a firstborn natural son, you could still adopt in from the outside. So this adopted son who came in has all of the rights, all of the privileges, all of the access to the inheritance of the family come in through adoption. Furthermore, in the Roman world at that time, if you were adopted, your biological family relinquished all claim and all right to you. You were, as it were, cut off from them. You are now part of your adopted family family. Listen to how Paul uses this concept of adoption here, and I'll just go through it quickly with you. Don't even bother to turn in the various New Testament passages. He speaks in Romans 9, 4 of God adopting Israel as a nation, that God adopted Israel as a nation. There he's referring back, I believe, back into Exodus. In fact, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 God says then to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That is that God adopted the nation of Israel. He he made them his. But beyond that, in the New Testament, God adopts individuals. He adopts individuals into his family. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, he, he does this through predestination. He predestines them to adoption as sons before the foundation of the earth. It is in the plan and mind of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5 tells us that the adoption is made possible by the death of His own Son, Jesus Christ. Here, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 speaks of our adoption and it, and it explains it as that which happens when we believe. We receive the Spirit of God. He is a Spirit of adoption. We are made sons at the moment of belief. Finally, Romans 8, verse 23, 
It speaks of our adoption down there, and it says we are waiting eagerly for the adoption for our adoption as sons. That is the redemption of our body, meaning that our adoption is an already and a not yet experience. We are already the sons of God by the virtue of the indwelling spirit of God, the spirit of adoption. But there is a not yet sense in which these mortal bodies yet wait immortality. When we receive our resurrection bodies, the adoption will be complete. So what are the implications? What are the implications of adoption for you, for me as a believer? Well, drawing on the Roman culture of adoption, let me suggest a few to you. Adoption means that we have been placed into a family to which we did not belong. By virtue of our spirit adoption, we have been placed into a family to which we did not belong. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says we are children of wrath. We have now become sons of God by virtue of adoption. Furthermore, our adoption means that we are completely free from former relationships. The old family ties have been severed. And in particular, the law has been severed as it relates to us. Our adoption has freed us from the condemnation of the law. Galatians 4, verse 5. Third, our adoption was originated and initiated by God, not us. Ephesians 1, verse 5. It is God who has initiated your adoption. And then finally, our adoption means that we have the full rights and privileges as members of God's family. And that's what this passage speaks about. We have the full rights and privileges as members of God's family. And it all comes about because we have been adopted as sons into the very family of God. This adoption, look again, Romans 8, verse 15, generates within us a cry of intimacy. It is not just a cold, sterile, legal reality. It is not just a forensic reality, although it is that. It generates an intimacy between us and God Himself. The spirit of adoption who now resides within us because of our union with Jesus Christ produces within us, causes us to cry out, verse 15, Abba, Father. Abba is a Greek word. It just means Daddy. It means Papa. It is a word of intimacy. It is a family word. It is a word that is used in the home as an expression of intimacy. We have gone from a state of fear, a state of bondage, to a state of intimacy with the Creator of the universe. Do you know Jesus used this word, Abba, Father, as He spoke of His own intimacy with God the Father? Mark 14, verse 36, He uses it there in the garden where He calls out on God to let this cup pass from Him. Abba, Father. Paul says that we now have that kind of relationship. That the very Son of God in the moment of His greatest need calls out to the Father in these intimate and endearing terms, we too now call out in the same way. We have been brought into that kind of a relationship. Paul says, Galatians 4, 6, that because we are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This idea of crying out, verse 15, by which we cry out, krazo in the Greek, has the idea of a loud crying, of an urgent crying. It's used over 40 times in the Psalms, in the Greek New Testament, the Septuagint, over 40 times in the Psalms, and it refers to urgent prayer. It's given in the context of an urgent prayer. And I think it has the same basic meaning here. I think what Paul's talking about here, and he says when, when you receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, he is talking about the very level of intimacy that you would see expressed in the Psalms. As you read through the Psalms and, you, and the psalmist pours out his heart to God in some of the most intimate and passionate ways, that's what we experience. That's the reality for us. 
our Heavenly Father is so close. He is so trustworthy that we call out to Him, that we cry out to Him, either audibly or inaudibly, either publicly or privately. He alone is the one to whom we turn. Think of it this way. Think of a small child who is out running on the patio there after service and falls and skins his knee. Who does he want? He calls for his mama, doesn't he? No one else can comfort him. No one else can make it feel better. No one else can console this, this wounded child. But a hug from his mom, a kiss, a whisper in his ear, it's going to be okay. And he goes from crying to placing his head on her shoulder in a position of comfort and security. I think that's the picture that Paul's talking about here. That in our times of distress as believers, the only one who can help us is God. And in fact, He is the only one who will do. We don't turn to man because man can't help us. Even if you have the best of marriages, your spouse can't help you. It is God alone in those deep moments of need. You call out to Him. You cry out to Him. You say, Abba, Father, help me. Help me. Paul goes on to describe our intimacy here, not just in the call and cry of our heart, but the internal witness of the Spirit of God Himself. You see it in verse 16? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think this is one of the most reassuring verses in all of the New Testament. I like this verse. The Spirit Himself bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. I can remember back to a question on my ordination exam many years ago. The examiners asked me, am I a follower of Christ? Am I a child of God? And I said, I am. And they said, how do you know? How do you know that you are a child of God? And I opened my Bible to Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, and I said, The Spirit Himself bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. I know it because He has made it clear to me. He has made it clear to me. Through the inner witness of His Holy Spirit, He has confirmed it to my spirit. How? Look at the end of verse 15. How? And that He has enabled me, He has motivated me, He has prompted me, He has led me to cry out, Abba, Father. Me who was once hostile to God, an enemy of God, unable to do anything to please Him, dead and hostile to Him, verses 7 and 8, now calls and cries out to Him who I once hated, Abba, Father. That's how the Spirit confirms it in my spirit. That He has so transformed me that I have gone from being an enemy of God to a very child of God. And this is not something that I did myself. This is not an assurance that I have imparted to myself. This is an assurance that He has given me. Look at it, verse 16 again. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. It's not my spirit bearing witness with Him. It is Him bearing witness with me. He assures me. It comes from outside me. It comes from beyond me. It comes from God Himself to me. These two verses together, beloved, do a marvelous job of bringing out the important truth about assurance. All of us have struggled at one time or another in our Christian lives with the assurance of our salvation. Am I really a child of God? Everybody, everybody doubts at one time or another. Whether it be early in your walk and sometimes even later on. Some whose consciences are really tender seem to struggle with doubt a lot. Others not so much, but everyone struggles at one point or another. Oh, this undoubtedly occurs because we perceive our sanctification as not moving forward at the speed and pace that we think it ought to. We look around us and, and measure ourselves against others whose heart, by the way, you can't see and whose lives you do not know. 
So we measure what we see on the outside and compare it to the rottenness we see on the inside of ourselves and figure they're way ahead of us. And so what is wrong with me? We all doubt at times. Sometimes we even have fallen into such sin, such grievous sin, that it seems as though the process of sanctification has reversed itself. And the doubts come. But listen to me now. Important as our walk is, important as our walk is, and it is crucial, it is crucial, it is not the only test for paternity. It is not the only one. The Spirit's inner working in our hearts by which He leads us to call out Abba, Father, to look away from ourselves and towards Him, To realize the relationship that He has established with us brings tremendous comfort to our, to our hearts. It enables us to get back on the path of righteousness when sin has snuck up on you and it has seized you by the heel, as it were, and drug you down. You come back onto the path because the Spirit of God is witnessing to your spirit that you are a child of God. It's the second part of the paternity test. Are you being led by the Spirit of God away from sin and towards righteousness? Do you experience and enjoy intimacy with God? Has the Spirit of God confirmed to your spirit that you're a child of God? Do you cry out, Abba, Father, And third, the third part of the test, verse 17. Sons of God live with future hope. Sons of God live with future hope. Sons of God enjoy intimacy with Him, verse 14. Sons, or, or excuse me, are led by the Spirit, verse 14. Sons of God enjoy intimacy with Him, verses 15 and 16. Third, sons of God live with future hope. And if children, we are heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul's continuing the theme of adoption here. It flows through this passage and and by metaphor here, he enumerates the reality that those who are the sons of God by adoption are by extension also his heirs. That we are the heirs of God. We are, we are full members of the family of God by faith. We have God as our Father. We have Jesus Christ as our elder brother. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This inheritance, this incredible blessing of inheritance is beyond the reach of our senses. You can't put your hand on it. You can't gather it to yourself. There's no bucket you can put it in. There's no box to ship it in. It lies beyond you. It's, it's out of reach. It is accessed only by faith. It can be apprehended only by hope. But it is nonetheless true. It is your inheritance. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ if you know Him in a saving way this morning. And if that be true, then you are guaranteed the inheritance which God Himself has treasured up for you. What is that inheritance like? What is it that God has laid in store for those who love Him? What are you going to receive someday? Well, the Scripture says that you will participate in the millennial kingdom. And as a child of God, you will participate in the great thousand-year kingdom of Israel. That you will rule and reign together with Christ in the kingdom of God. You will know and enjoy peace and prosperity and universal justice. Things that have eluded mankind since the fall and things which every sensitive and righteous heart longs for. You will know freedom 
from the presence of sin. Freedom from the presence of sin. If you are a follower of Christ today, you know freedom from the penalty of sin because Christ has been crucified for you. And because of your union with Christ and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, you know freedom from the power of sin. It no longer holds you in bondage, but someday you will know freedom from the presence of sin itself. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to that. I look forward to that. You will have a resurrected body as chapter 8 will continue to unfold for us. A resurrected body. A body suitable to be in the presence of your Creator. You will have a reunion with friends and family members. Loved ones who knew Jesus Christ and have died. Paul gives that as comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4. We will be reunited Someday. The grave is not the end when you stand on the edge of a hole in the ground and you watch a coffin lowered in. There can be no more depressing sight. But for a believer to know that that's not the end. That someday we will be reunited. You can look forward to an unhindered worship of Christ. An unhindered worship of Christ. We gather here this morning to worship Christ, but there are hindrances that abound. Hindrances that abound. There are thoughts and preoccupations of the weak. There is fatigue of the body. There is, there is annoyances in the atmosphere. There's pains in your leg. I don't know what it is. There's all kinds of things going on. There's, there's even my communication problems, all of which hinder your worship of Christ, and in the end, they will all be gone. They will all be gone. As good as it can get here, and it can be pretty good, it's nothing, nothing compared to what someday awaits us in our inheritance. But amazing as this treasure is, and it is amazing to think about, Participation in the millennial kingdom, a resurrection body, freedom from the presence of sin, unhindered worship of Christ. Amazing as those things are, I think there's more to this here. And I think we need to consider the possibility that God himself is our inheritance. And that's what he's talking about. If children heirs also heirs of God, that is, we will inherit God himself. We will be rightly related to him in perfect Fellowship unhindered by sin. Our greatest, our highest, our most noble good. And indeed, the longing of every believing heart. Listen to the words of the psalmist. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. He writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think Rich Mullins was absolutely right when he put these verses together in a song he wrote called One Thing. You are my one thing. God Himself is my inheritance. We are heirs, beloved, heirs of God and heirs of His kingdom. We will receive what He has promised. We are also beyond that joint heirs with Christ. You see it? Fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. I think when he's talking about this, he, he's just using this terminology to remind us that the blessings of God, the blessings of the kingdom... They come in and through our union with Christ. Paul's pointing us back to Christ again. We are sons of God by virtue of the fact that we belong to the Son of God. We will inherit the kingdom of God by virtue of our union with the one who is the heir of all God's promises. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, His Son whom He appointed heir of all things. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We will receive the glory because we will receive it in union with Him. 
But if we're going to receive that glory, beloved, there is a path to follow. There is a path to follow. Oneness with Christ means we share His path. Look at verse 17 again. Look at the end of the verse. If indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We will share His glory as joint heirs. But the road to glory, the path to glory, is a path of suffering. It is the path of suffering. We must share the consequences of the world's opposition to Him. Listen to the words He spoke to His disciples on the night in which He was betrayed. John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The path to glory leads through the cross. The path of glory is the path of suffering. There is no crown without a cross. That was true of Christ. It is true of us. But don't be discouraged. Be encouraged by this. Yes, it is the condition of our inheritance, but it is beyond that. It is an indication of our family identity. Our family identity. Christian suffering doesn't call our sonship into question. It's not a time to say, God, where are you? Or am I really your child? In fact, it is actually a pledge that we will be glorified with Him. By the way, that's exactly what Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Their affliction, their suffering, is the sign that God looks on them with favor. Suffer now. Glory later. In the return of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. And so we live with future hope. We live with future hope. We live in a way of our eyes not on the horizontal, but our eyes lifted to heaven. We long for the day to come. When we will experience the glory. But we know that the path to receive it is the path of suffering. Beloved, spiritual DNA shows up on a spiritual paternity test. It shows up. If you got the stuff, you're a child of God. If you don't, you're not. There's no better time to take the test. No better time than now to take this test. Ask yourself. Be honest with your own heart. Are you being led by the Spirit of God away from sin and into holiness? Are you enjoying intimacy with your Creator? Do you live with a future Hope of glory. If so, then you have passed the test. You have passed the test. You are indeed a child of God. But if these things are not true of you, if they are not true, then I urge you with all of my heart, all of my being, all the force of my character that I can urge upon you, If you do not pass the test, then you must repent. You must abandon your self-righteousness. You must give up hope that somehow that God has a great cosmic scale and He's going to place your good on one side and your bad on the other and somehow you're going to balance it out and get in because you could not be more deceived. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 48, You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If perfection sits on one side of the scale, beloved, there is nothing you can put on the other to balance it out. You need to throw yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith believing that His death described in Isaiah 53 
was for you. Call upon Him in faith to save you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we do every week, I encourage you, don't sit here another week and remain in your spiritual lethargy. The Word has been preached. The Spirit of God is calling for a response. Come to this lighted cross. Come and do business with God. Let us open the Word of God with you and answer questions you might have. Let us show you in in detail how you may know and how you may become a child of God. Let me pray. Our Father, I thank You for this very reassuring section of Romans 8. Because, our Father, You have given us some very practical ways to evaluate our own lives, our own hearts, and to know with certainty that we are Your children. And our Father, we, we recognize that it is not perfection that You insist upon from Your children, but it is the direction of their lives. And so, our Father, as we move through life and stumble and fall, and we surely do, we pray that Your Spirit would strengthen us in the inner man that we could get back up and continue upon the path. I pray, Lord, for any in our midst this morning whose conscience is weak and tender and for whom assurance of their salvation is something in which they struggle. And I pray that You would use this message to encourage their heart and strengthen their faith. Lord, I pray as well for that person who is here this morning who has yet to express saving faith. And I ask You to be merciful to them. Open their eyes, Lord, please, that they might be born anew. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.